Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. If you would like a one-on-one conversation to help you get clear on what you want in life and what's in your way of getting there, visit theandygrant.com slash talk and book a no-obligation, no-cost appointment. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant, and I'm a man. And today I'm talking to another man, because that's what men do. Yeah. They talk to each other, right? <sighs> and uh, But we're, we're not talking about the weather or sports. We're not going to be putting down our spouses, as far as I know, um, which isn't what most men do. Like, we're going we're gonna to talk about losing who you are as a man, forgetting who you are, not being sure who you are, right? We're talking about... You know, evolution and creation of of you as an individual, mm-hmm. right? So my guest today is Bob Minhas. He is a business expertise coach, educator, and speaker. He builds experts by coaching aspiring business owners and entrepreneurs ready to level up with his unique approach of combined intuition and business sensibility. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Andy, for having me. My pleasure. And uh, it, was, it was this sort of like a podcasting Tinder that put us together, Right. <laughs> it was. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's it's unfortunately it's shut down since then. I think. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. I'm still, yeah. 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 Mm, cool. Awesome. Well, so you are the experts, experts. You help yeah. people discover their expertise. So does, does that mean you were, were you just born an expert and, and identifying people's skills? Or, you know, was there a time that you you weren't the experts, expert? You, you know, it's funny. Uh, that's that's the first variation of that question that's been asked of me. And, and as you ask it, I think uh, I actually learned to do what I do merely out of survival. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a lot of people presume there's this idea of uh, when you're the expert, you're perfection. But, you know, wh- going through what I went through with divorce and homelessness, um, the only thing, the only asset I could build with the limited resources I have was my knowledge. So, so I sort of, I've done that and, and I hate to say it, I've done it twice in my life. <laughs> this is my third iteration. Um, and, uh, I, I realized that any human being could do it. And I think when we feel like we only have one option or so many options, work full time or, you know, raise a family or get married, you know, we don't realize that there's a whole world out there that we can access. And so when I started this concept of, you know, maybe I need to be a, a knowledge purveyor or an expert. It opened up so many other doors that I knew before. Cause I came, I came from that corporate world and I came from that, you know, put your head down, get a good degree, get married and study. And then when I started following down this path, uh, I started meeting so many more interesting people like you doing interesting things. So when you were kind of the role and you go, go to school, get a job, w- yeah. was there a time that that felt good? Did that feel fulfilling at, at, at some points in your life? I think it, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I think it felt fulfilling because it was all I knew. So if all you know is that pattern of get good grades, get a degree, get married, have to, if that's all you know, you presume the achievements you have achieved is the right thing to do. And then after my divorce, this, it's, it cracked, my world cracked open. There were so many other parts of the world that I, I had no idea existed. So, the answer to your question is, yeah, it felt fulfilling at the time. And now when I reflect on it, it's like, wow, I, I really only lived 10% of my life. 
Yeah, I guess it, right. If you're, you've always been doing this, this kind of one thing, yeah. that's your only experience. Yeah. So, absolutely. so uh, uh, this must be as good as life is. Yeah. Like, you you yeah. don't know yet. Yeah. I've done it. It really is the Truman Show, right? Okay. All you know is the Truman Show. Then everything is perfect. Cool. So well, you, you mentioned the divorce a couple of times. So is that you know? Uh, out of the blue, a big surprise. Did you know that that relationship was ending? You know, how did that? Yeah, go? no, I, yeah, I, that's another, man, you ask good questions. <laughs> so I, you know, it wasn't a surprise. Uh, you know, my ex and I had been going through some challenges as, as many couples do when, when you're at that crux of you, you're trying to make a living, trying to create a house, you're having young children. And uh, we spent a, you know, a good year and a half in counseling, trying to figure out how to make this work. And what we, what we sort of realized was we had both changed. Um, you know, we had evolved, but differently. And we couldn't get back to being the people who met back in college. Like we couldn't get back to that. So when that happened, uh, I grew up as a divorced child. My ex grew up as a divorced child. We had this immense fear of what are our children going to go through? Because, you know, as, as growing up with single parents, we experienced a lot of hardship. So, so when that happened, we it's amazing since day one the only thing we've ever agreed on is is how to make sure we're caring for our kids so uh so it happened but i you know i sort of made this decision of um you know i need to step out i don't i never wanted my kids andy to pack a bag to see me every weekend like that experience of it all i never wanted them to start questioning what their home was i always wanted them to have an anchor and security so so we sort of set this up where it, it, the kids never left the house. They, you know, I would visit them there and we would go out, but they knew where their home was. They knew what their bed was. They knew all of that. And um, it's interesting as a man to, to, to make that decision, because I think a lot of men who I knew at the time, because what will happen, Andy, is when you start to evolve, you start to friendectomize your, <laughs> your network. The men I knew at the time is that was wrong. That I was, I wasn't standing up and demanding what I wanted and taking it, and you know, it, it just was so adversarial. Whereas I never wanted them to experience that, so it wasn't a surprise. What was a surprise, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, Andy, is how we managed it after the fact. Hmm. So it wasn't as contentious as as some. So I, I've never been divorced, but the majority of divorced men I know, there is that period that you're like to attack, and ah, she was never any good, yeah. and it, like it gets. Yeah. Oh and no! Yeah, another guy's egging on. Like, yeah, no, I was contentious, but oh, yeah. <laughs> that was me and her. Her and I had that, um, but we always, we never, we did everything we could never to let it flow to the kids. Okay, right. So to the kids, you know, until they see this podcast, if they see this podcast, uh, they thought everything was was okay. I mean, they knew obviously there was a change happening, and we had to manage that change for them. But by all means, was it not? Uh, you know, War of the Roses, if you remember that movie. So it was, um, uh, it was just her and I trying to manage that. You know, how do we get to the same result that we want while we still have these really sore and hurt feelings around each other, right? So you had, at, at that time, had you, you know, you've had a few businesses. So was, you, had you built up successful, uh, a business and a life and felt. Yeah. That was my, all the pieces were there for what was supposed to be the ideal existence. Yeah, that was my first iteration. So I did deviate a little bit by not having a perfect job. Uh, when I was uh, laid off, I decided to pursue entrepreneurship full time. I always had it as a side hustle. So, uh, you know, this business built to, you know, earning quite a bit of money, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year, which in 2008 is good. Like if I say it now, you're like, eh, that's 
pittance. But back in 2008, that was really good. Um, and the business we had had a lot of visibility. I, I had clients that were, you know, large builders and large brands. And, you know, I was on HGTV here in Canada with a few professionals in the work that I did. So it was highly successful. And then when we got, when we divorced and we started deciding what assets we had to split, it, you know, obviously the business had to be liquidated, but I realized I learned quickly that I built a business that wasn't sustainable, meaning that if I got sick or if I died or if I got divorced, the business couldn't thrive. And that so, was my first lesson. Right. So you were the business. There was no yes. other part of it. Right. No, I had a team. And obviously my ex at the time was great with the numbers. Um, but I couldn't, I, the moment I stepped away with it, it just collapsed. We really just had to liquidate it. And, and I, I mean, that's an issue for, I would think the majority of entrepreneurs when they're yeah. still at that phase, when it is just them, like, it, of course, it's just me. I'm, I'm all there is like, they yeah. haven't gotten built to a, have, have staff and support. Yeah. And, right. yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I meet a lot of men and women who are going through relationship challenges, well, even before the divorce or the separation happens, I, and this, I don't mean this to sound crass, Andy, but it's just statistical is I will see a dip in their revenue every time. Whenever I'm talking to a business owner and they're struggling, I, I, I can almost say it. I can say, Hey, Jane or Hey, Tom, can I ask you, how are things at home? Almost nine out of 10. I'm going to get it right because you're right. We build businesses based on what we know. And a lot of the experts I deal with, they're experts in a certain trade. So, you know, chiropractors, dentists, uh, what have you, they go to school for all these years, Andy, and there's never, ever a class on business or entrepreneurship. It's always about their skill set. So when something bad happens, they're never given the tools um, or even sort of the the coping mechanisms, if you will, on how to make a business operate outside of themselves. They're never taught that. The presumption is I'm the one dispensing the knowledge, so I am the business. And that's the greatest, uh, that's the number one factor that kills businesses because we never think of divorce or getting hurt, getting sick, or quite frankly, you know, Andy, we become human and realize we don't love what we do anymore. <laughs> now we've got this business that needs us, right? And how important is that? I don't, I don't think people are taught like, you better make sure you love what you're going into. Like, it's just get a good job, right? That never gets yeah. mentioned. So Yeah, you know, I'd say it's the number one thing. I say, if you don't, so often when I'm talking to people who are, let's say they're they're getting into starting, they're side hustling, what have you. And they ask me, Bob, I have a good, I have an idea, but I don't know if it's good. That's the first question I ask them. I say, first of all, well, it's the second question. Sorry, the first question is, you know, do you have experience in this idea? If you've been an accountant all your life, and now you're opening a restaurant. Eh, are you sure this is something you want to do? But number two, I asked them, like, do you wake up sweaty in the morning with excitement about it? Because there are going to be days, like in, like even a relationship, Andy, there's going to be days when, when it's not going to feel good or people are going to make you question it or you yourself are going to question it or Revenue Canada's <laughs> the government's going to question it because of the taxes. There's always going to be a question about it. You need to love it as you love any other, quite frankly, person, because, you know, uh, unconditional love, which we always hear applied to relationships, but unconditional love for what you do is what I promise gets you through anything, any challenges that come up. Cool. Yeah. So did that divorce, uh, did that relationship ending, was that a challenge to your masculinity, your identity at all? Or was that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was in this relationship that had now taken away my identity. So, you know, I built my identity as a man. So not even just as a human, Andy, but as a man, as I, I'm this, or I'm a businessman. I'm a businessman. You know, this is who I am and what I do. I own a business. And, you know, one of the mistakes I always made was, 
you know, I, I don't think I gave my ex-wife a lot of credit for it. It was always me. And we would go to events and they would ask, they would call her Bob's wife. And you can imagine for a woman how that's, that's, that's not exactly imploring uh, excitement in them. But um, yeah, it attacked every part of me. So my identity of as a business owner was gone. You know, in my business, Andy, I chose to create a uniform. I used to wear a uniform, but I chose it. And when I got divorced and I had to obviously move out, I realized the only clothes I had were my uniform. I actually didn't have other clothes. So when I had to dress as a civilian, if you will, I literally had no clothes because that was my identity. And then, of course, as a businessman, my identity was also that I'm a married father of three. And now that was gone, right? Not only am I not married, am I really still a father of three? You know, Or now am I a single dad? Or am I a co-parent? Like all of these. So it, it shifted all of these things I knew about my identity. And and after my divorce, I was I was... I didn't really have a place to live. I was, you know, for lack of a better word, homeless. I was transitioner. I was couch to couch, slept in a storage unit for a few weeks. I was all over the place, Andy. And certainly you can understand how for me at the time, my masculinity was defined by my ability to provide. My ex-wife was a stay-at-home mom. Her mom lived with us. We, you know, I was feeding every mouth in the house. And now that was gone. And so, you know, I always, I grew up with a single mom, but I still always grew up with that, that understanding that it's a man's job to provide. So it, it man, it, you know, 15 months it messed me up because now I, I was trying to provide for my family um but not doing a very good job of it so yeah it, it eroded a lot of my confidence my identity uh my masculinity which at the time which i learned later really isn't how you define your masculinity or how you can but yeah it was a huge huge awakening so uh, how did you define it then or did you even have a definition no, I did. I, you know what? It was defined by my father. So although my parents were separated, I still saw my father. My father was this sort of traditional man that led the household. So, you know, we're South Asian, right? So my father is South Asian. And in the South Asian culture, which is, you know, Sikhism and all that, you know, uh, uh, you make the money, you make more money, you, you, you provide for your family and your wife makes dinner for you. And, you know, there was all of these ideals of um, this is what it means to be a man. So it wasn't even just being a husband, it was, this is what it was to be a man. So, uh, it was my job to always make more of the money. Uh, it was, it was my ex-wife's job at the time to do the cooking and cleaning. It wasn't my job to rear my children unless I, you know, had the energy to do so. It was very one-sided. It was really one-sided. Um, you know, it, it was still acceptable for me to go to events and not worry about, you know, if my ex-wife needed help, like it, it just, you know, think of it really was caveman, caveman rule. Right. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I promise you, that's one of the factors that besides changing identities, as I said earlier, that's one of the other major factors that led to that breakup of a relationship was I had these expectations that I don't think she felt was fair. Right. It's, it's, it's amazing to me that, um, growing up with a single mom, you still had all this dominating the man yeah. does it all, yeah. um, is what stuck with you. Yeah. Well, my mom grew up with that. That's what my mom taught me. Right. And she didn't teach me overtly. She didn't say, well, actually she, she did used to say be a man. <laughs> so, but you know, again, South Asian culture, she grew up with this concept that, uh, her son should be doing a lot more masculine things. He should be getting a job. He eventually should be taking care of her. He should be doing all the, the lawn maintenance. Like, you know, there was a lot of these sort of traditional, um, roles that my mom grew up with that were put it on me as well as my father put on me. And, you know, that didn't include crying. You didn't cry at funerals. You, uh, you definitely, you know, 
didn't hug. We never hugged or kissed or said, I love you. We never did that in my family. And so, you know, when I met my ex-wife at the time, you know, it was, uh, you know, I was a different person, obviously. And as we got married and as my, my life became very typical, uh, I started to fall back into these traditional roles. I grew this role I grew up in. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm very open and honest that I, even if I met me today, who was that guy back then, I wouldn't like him at all. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I, I still, as much as I work on myself, I still live with a lot of regret and shame over letting myself believe that that was the way to be. Right. You, you raised something that I had not thought of or heard anyone else talk about. And mm-hmm. so I do not have kids, but you mentioned from after the divorce, during mm-hmm. the divorce or after the divorce, questioning, are you still a dad? Yeah. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Of course you are. So can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, again, that definition of a father is he's always there to, to, to sit, di- have dinner with you. He's always there to fix the, the lawnmower or the door when it's not working. You know, dad's always there when you're scared. Dad's always there to play football in the backyard. You know, I, I wasn't there anymore because now, uh, you know, I wasn't in the home. So, um, I, you know, all those traditional definitions of what a father should be, I couldn't execute. And here's the thing, Andy, it wasn't my ex-wife's fault because even in the time, I was with my children. I had so much, um, what's the best way to explain it? I had so much happening in my head. I had so much discourse with my mental health. I couldn't even show up as their father when I did see them. When I did see them, I had all of these things in the back of my head saying, you know what? They know you're the loser that your, that you, your, their mom tells you they are, them you are. Or they, they know that you're broke as shit. Like they, you know, they, I had all of these insecurities that would come out. And I couldn't show up as their father. It was really, really difficult. And uh, it haunted me for a long time because I have two boys and a girl. And, you know, it was, it was, you know, my, my oldest son, he was, um, he was nine. Sorry. He was, uh, I have to do the math in my head. He was seven at the time. And, you know, he starts sort of getting into these more traditional things like sports and, and certain games and things like that. And I don't know. I just felt like I, I, it was, yeah, it was. That's a, mm. I'm ending this on a weak answer, but it's like, it was just so much in my head that prevented me from showing up yeah. to be there, to be what I thought was to be their father. Yeah. It's, funny, it's only in your answering that I'm realizing why I didn't ever thought of that. So I'm, I'm a parent, I'm a parent, I'm a child yeah. of divorce yeah. and my folks got divorced when I was so young. I have no memory of them together. So my, my concept of dad is someone I see every Sunday afternoon. Right. That I didn't, it's like, and of, but I, of course he was my dad. So, yeah. but I've not, I, I don't have conscious memory of that transition. Yeah. So when it can seem like it's different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, it's, you know, and I, I think one, a lot of the things I learned um, was all about, it's not what I think they, it's not what I think they think. It's what they think. Do you know what I mean? So oh, yeah. I was projecting what I thought I was to them on them and they would react as the mirror. Yeah. And so when I started actually giving them more, benefit of the doubt when I started actually engaging them in questions and asking them things. It was interesting that a lot of the things that I thought they believed was actually very much untrue. And of course it's been seven years since my divorce. So, you know, year by year, I'm, I'm, I'm learning more and more about it. And one of the key things that hit me was my boys are going to treat their women, their future, sorry, their spouse, their partner, I should say. I'm, I'm presuming they're, it's going to be women. But let's say their future partner. They're going to treat them in how they saw me treat their mom. Because, you know, kids form memories at the age that they were when we separated. So, right? And then my daughter 
is going to look for a partner that's going to treat her the way I treated their mom. And that was a huge shift, Andy. The moment I thought about my daughter having me as a husband, I that was like the biggest catalyst of shift. It was like, mm-hmm. I don't want her to marry me then. <laughs> like, I can't even fathom it. So that was a huge, huge shift right there. Cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah I mean, nothing can change without awareness. So often yeah. you need you need to lose everything. You need to have that dark note of the soul to, to realize that, yeah, I, you know, I don't like me. I don't like my situation, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's interesting. And, and I get it that kind of our own self judgment and doubts mm-hmm. and yeah, you, you, you see your kids through that lens and assume yeah. they know that. And that's how yeah. they're looking back at you. Like the yeah. loser, they can't get stuff done. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm glad, but it, it takes confidence. It takes, boy, it takes some skill too to, to ask them and discover if that's not what they're assuming. Like you, yeah. you could have just kept living for years on these yeah. false assumptions. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly from day one. It still took some time. So I, you know, I had to make the choice of how do I want to make this better? And my first logic at the time was, you know, I need to find other people who have gone through it. And at the time, uh, you know, I was in a couple support groups. People kept telling me that my relationship with my ex and co-parenting needed to be adversarial, that I needed to challenge her and to step up and to question her because if I give her support payments, how do I know what she's spending it on? Or, you know, is she making the right decisions for the kids when they're not there? And it never felt good, Andy. So even being the arrogant prick I was back then, it didn't feel good having to challenge her all the time. And so here's another, here's another crack to my masculinity. My mom would actually do this is she would say like, you're, you're, why are you wussing out? Like, why, why aren't you standing up and being that man? And it was interesting to me that I just kept fighting it. I kept fighting like, okay, I'll be a man and I'll do this and I'll treat her like that. And I, it never felt good. So I have to be honest with you. It took me at least the first year and a half to two years in our separation to start asking those questions. And because then I would start finding other male mentors that I could learn from who would ask those questions, who would say, you know, you actually don't have to do this. And, you know, you know, so, so it took me to, it took me that long to get there. And then a lot of it also, Andy was facilitated by my kids themselves because they started asking questions. Mm-hmm. And so I felt, you know, I wish I could say I was the hero, but I started feeling more courageous when they started asking those questions. So then I started experimenting to a point now where I, I openly can ask them that, but it, you know, seven years, Andy, yeah. seven years of, of really feeling that out and, and managing their expectations and their answers and being able to, um, being able to be okay give myself permission of not always having the answer. My kids know I'm flawed now, right? I was always thinking, there's another definition my parents gave me as to be a man, you always got the answer. And if you don't have the answer, make it look like you have the answer. With my kids, I'm openly vulnerable. Hey man, I, I don't know. I'm willing to find out, but I have to be honest with you that I don't know. That was one. Number two, I learned how to apologize to my kids. And, and this comes in when sometimes I had a bad day and I would get upset. And that awareness you mentioned earlier, I really had to think about, okay, in this situation, was getting upset really the right choice to do? Being able to apologize. Hey, you know, kid, I'm really sorry. That was unnecessary. Really, this is what I was trying to achieve. So that, I think, helped me a lot too in in, in becoming the Bob that I wanted to be is having these, open, my, you know, everything I've done, everything I've built, everything I do, you know, when, when you hear Simon Sinek talk about your why, it's always been about them. It's always been about how am I creating three future leaders? How am I creating three 
how am I creating a legacy in three people? Because it's not just one child, it's three that they're going to change the world. And I stole this from Superman 100%. But in Man of Steel, when he says, like, whether you do good things, whether you do bad things, you're going to change the world. I honestly believe, um, every parent will say this, Andy. I honestly believe the kids I have are, comp- are going to be amazing game changers. So it's my responsibility to make sure that I, I give them the every option they can to choose the right path and not the wrong one. Cool. Yeah, I mean, your, your kids were the experts in their dad. Yeah. And they, they, so they, they had to coach you up. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I, I fully admit it. I fully admit it. And, you know, I think that awareness um, uh, spread to them because they have, they're amazingly aware as well. My daughter more than my boys. My boys are, they have awareness. They just, I, they don't communicate it as effectively. And, and my daughter is very open about her, her awareness of what's happening, right? Um, and I think with my boys, the thing is, is we're constantly, because although I spend time with them, you know, they, they were still in a school environment with other traditional boys. And, and I think they, they are constantly fed a definition of masculinity that's different than what I feed them. Right. But eight hours a day, they're not with me. They're with those kids. So I think, I think for a long time, they, they, they're still working through it. This idea of how do I show up as a man? Even at 13, my oldest is 13. It's still, how do I show up as a man? And, and so it's part of that is, well, don't whine. So I'm constantly encouraging them that it's not whining to ask for what you want or to communicate what you need. It's not whining. So we're still working on that. But my daughter's amazingly, shockingly, sometimes <laughs> openly aware about where her mind's at. Cool. So, so your son's not being taught the exact same limited role that you grew up with, but he's still getting a limited role of what masculinity yeah. means. Yeah. And it's really, you know, the idea of constantly showing up to them of being vulnerable and op- uh, open and and being honest about things and telling them when I'm not sure and when I'm scared and when I'm n- believe fully 100% in them, you know, it's, it's, they watch that. And I think, you know, over time they've started to develop their own identity, which is a little bit of a mix of what they're getting outside of me and what they are of me. Mm-hmm. So that's all I can do, Andy. I can't, I can't mold them to be who I want them to be. My belief has always been this. It is our job as fathers, uncles, grandparents, whatever. It's always our job to give the children who are important in our life options, right? I'm never, I never tell them 99.9%. I don't tell them what to do, but I always want them to understand they have options and to choose the option that best fits them because their identity, it's what's going to drive it. So I, I, as I see them grow more and more, I can see them sort of understanding that masculinity is more fluid than when I was a kid. But at the same time, I think there's a bit of a role that they feel like they have to play in this environment that they're in. So you talked about what the, again, this limited view of masculinity that you grew up with and and discovering that part of it didn't just never felt right to you to begin with. Yeah. So how would you define your own masculinity today? Today, it's still evolving. I'm still always, always evolving. So one of the other things that I worked on was, you know, when I was going through this shift, we started seeing a rise in female leaders and female-centric groups, right? So what I did was I had a number of female leaders in my network. I would openly talk to them and say, hey, I need to understand from your perspective, how do you define a man? And then I would talk to more emotionally intelligent men that I knew, and I would ask them, how you define a man. And so much like I said, my, my boys are doing, or all my kids are doing, I started taking bits and pieces of every 
definition given to me. And I started, it's almost like a mask, right? It's like, okay, let me put it on and see how this feels. And let me put it on. Well, I like a little bit of this and I like a little bit of that. So, you know, my masculinity, I'm always evolving. I, I'm a huge communicator and believe it or not, there are people who don't like that in a man. I'm an open and honest communicator. I, I, it's really, really important to me. And, you know, I believe in, uh, there's this meme that went around Facebook a while ago that talks about, I think, sort of 30 things to be a man. And there are a few things in there that I love, right? The idea that, you know, you love openly and honestly, right? And vulnerably, you, you, you know, just just be openness. Uh, forgiveness, right? Being able to apply forgiveness in what you do. Um, the idea that um, mansplaining and manspreading doesn't have a place in this world, right? Um, so, so when you ask me who I am, I, I don't have a definitive answer, but I can tell you that I, I feel that I'm in a better place of loving who I am as a, as a man than I was seven years ago, without a doubt. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say this is who I am today, but I, that's my key thing is communication, being as open as I can. And, um, and, and you know what, actually, you know what it all comes down to Andy, when you think about it, it's love. For a long time, I didn't know how to love. Not that there's always the right way to love. But uh, in fact, there's a series I watched not too long ago based on a book called Modern Love. And it talks about all these different concepts of how people love. So the man I am today is not afraid to love. That's it. Whether it's a friend, like I'm openly happy to hug my male friends and tell them I love them. I'm openly happy to kiss my boys on the head. I'm, you know, openly happy to still some traditional aspects. So still open the car door for my daughter. Like, you know, it's, it's this meld of all of these things that felt right to me based on what people who I respected immensely felt was right to them. Cool. Yeah. I think, uh, evolving is the best answer <laughs> I, I could ever hear. Cause yeah. to me, the, 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 the problem, the challenges of really of, of defining anything, but masculinity in this case is the definition like it, it has barriers. It's whatever it is, it's limitation. But mm -hmm. if you say, oh, it, it's always evolving. Oh, great. You just, you blew it open. Yeah. So that's a, and it's kind of how you open the show is kind of a, to play with this idea. And like, to me, and, mm -hmm. and again, I, this not, this is not what I always believed. I lived in that box. Right. But yeah. to me today, whatever either of us does mm -hmm. is masculine. Yeah. Right. Because, oh, I'm a man. Whatever I do is manly. Yeah. Like, I, I don't care if I'm dancing around in a tutu. That's masculine <laughs> because I'm a man and I'm choosing to do it, right? Absolutely. It's choice. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think what's interesting is, you know, the other word I love to use is fluid, right? You know, I think this idea of when we get into fluid gender roles, uh, transgender roles, I think, you know, when you meet someone who's transgender, it doesn't mean they're any less of a, a man emotionally or mentally. Obviously, physically they might be. But, you know, when we when we put these labels on people, I, I I think we're getting back to putting people in boxes again. I love the idea of masculinity being fluid. It really is fluid. And I think, honestly, Andy, it's with all the evolution we are going through as a species in the world, I think you're going to find it's going to be fluid for at least the next two generations. So you're watching millennial men step up now and, you know, how they understand and treat women is different than how we did. And now you're going to watch Gen X, these young boys growing up how they're going to understand masculinity is going to be very different than how we do. So I think it's going to take us two or three generations to, to get to a place where we can arguably define, you know what, scratch that. I don't think we're ever going to, I think it's always going to evolve. That's there the, you go. That, yeah. Yeah. I was waiting for you to get there. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. If, if you've realized it's evolving so that you can yeah. say the evolving will be done in two generations. Like, yeah. No. It's no. just like, I get it. Like yeah. as far as I can imagine, it would yeah. be two generations. But yeah. 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 That doesn't mean anything. 
no, I think it's I think it's going to constantly evolve to the point where uh, obviously this might be a number of gender uh, generations away. I don't even think we're going to have genders at one point. I think it's you know obviously anatomy will be different, but again, with everything we're experiencing now, I think I think we're going to get back to being human again. Mm, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that that's the big secret behind the show. Like, yeah. no, the, the show exists to remind men that they're human. Yeah, that that that's all it is. Yeah, and and so especially the, these days with social justice issues and racism yeah. issues, every every ism yeah. is based in dehumanization. Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I, I agree. So the more that we can encourage other men to not just accept their humanity, but but love it. Yeah. Love themselves, love others, be open, you know, yeah. be happy and joyous, be, be shameful and guilty, like be yeah. whatever's happening. Like that's yeah. real men feel is that's what it's about. Feel what's in front of you in this freaking moment. Yeah. Right? And I think the key too is it's never perfect. It's never going to be perfect. You're not only when you evolve, you've got to break a few eggs. There's going to be times when you've, when, when you felt things or done things that feel really, really, really bad, but that's a learning opportunity. That really is. So that was the other thing I had to learn, which took a little bit longer than all the other stuff was forgiving myself for not being perfect. Um, and you know, even today where we are today, I, you know, still make a mistake or two because old patterns come out or, you know, uh, old voices come out and, and convince me of something that's not happening. And with, you know, obviously everything happening globally, both in the U S and in Canada, uh, I think a lot of men are also now questioning their role as a man in, in their community, right? Because now, you know, and you and I talked about this before we went on live, but now things are happening in our communities, in our world that I don't think we could have predicted. Surely we've seen them in Tom Cruise movies, but I don't think we, we could have predicted it would be actually happening here. And so how do you show up as a man now with everything going on? How can you show up and be the person that your family, your community and your, and the people around you need? Um, I think it's, I think it's evolving even faster, almost like technology. It's evolving even faster now. Yeah, yeah, the pace of change. Yeah, um, internally, externally, it's there. Unless you choose, like you just Netflix yeah. and chill to the max, and you refuse yeah. to evolve, like that. Yeah. That can be done too. You know? Yeah, no, that's um, that's fair. You mentioned uh, being perfect, and mm-hmm. this, this is something I, I realized uh, younger because I thought, you know, my perfectionism, and I was straight A student, and no, I had to be perfect, and it wasn't perfect. I was depressed and suicidal, mm-hmm. but I realized perfectionism is, is a crop. Like a perfectionist only sees what's wrong. Yes. Right. Yeah. You don't see what's right. You, you right. only see what's wrong. So it's actually imperfectionism is yeah. what is driving so much of us. Right. I love that. It's true. It's so, it so true. Right. And it's given to us. These patterns are given to us by our upbringing. Right. If you, if you think about the seventies and the eighties, you know, when you look at, even when you look at media back then, like uh, wall street, Gordon Gecko, right. Charlie Sheen and, and, and Kirk Douglas, you know, it's, it's those power suits or, or even that more recent one, Wolf on wall street, which was based on the eighties. You know, it's, it's, it is interesting that we've, we've grown up with these patterns and it's our responsibility to, to shed those patterns and replace them with others. But what I, what you know already and what I've learned is it's not easy. And so when we try and strive to do it and it doesn't work the first time, some guys quit. And it's like, got to keep doing it. It's no different than trying to lose weight or quit smoking. You know, you're going to fall off the wagon. Forgive yourself for doing it. Don't punish yourself. Just get back up and try again, right? right. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite books is The Four Agreements. And the first right. agreement isn't, it's not be perfect. It's yeah. do your best. Yeah. And your best is going to fluctuate yeah. based on your diet, your mood, your exercise, your sleep, all these different things. So yeah. if striving to do your best is so much healthier and right. possible and better feeling than striving for perfection. 
Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think part of that is when we strive for our best, it's, I think people forget to understand that your best is encapsulated in happiness. So if you're striving to do be the best at something, that question we asked earlier when we talked about businesses, but you got, it has to be something you love. If you say that you want to be the best darn vice president of your family organization, your family, but you hate the work, it's it's never going to happen. It's never going to, you're going to self-sabotage every time. But if if you say to yourself, well, I've always wanted to be a dancer or I've always wanted to act in local theater you know, being a thespian doesn't take away from being masculine at all. In fact, it engages creativity that I think we as men haven't always been open to, right? So, yeah, yeah, artistry, creativity, or also, oh, those are feminine things, and yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, and especially younger men, I'm seeing, oh, that's not the case. The no. people are way more because yeah. uh, the, the fluidity in in gender roles and tasks yeah. and, and habits are all just uh, going away. Absolutely, uh, which, which I think is a good thing. Yes. It, you know, you, uh, you mentioned authenticity earlier and I've had a few business coaches call me the king of authenticity. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm running with that this year. So it. why is authenticity important? Well, you know, the more, again, we evolve as a society, as a community is people, people know fraudness. <laughs> That's not a word, but people know fakeness. And I, here's, let me qualify that. It is a lot easier to identify the wolf on Wall Street than it used to be, right? In the 80s, no one saw him coming. Nobody. But if you saw that guy on the news, you could, right? We can readily identify it. And the problem with that is people are tired of being misled. And people, you know, this is one of the things that I have to work on often is people are tired of forgiving. They're tired. You know, they, they want people who are very honest that they can trust and don't have to question. You know, there's almost, I would dare say it's almost an attack on our nervous system when we meet somebody and we're wondering, are they trying to screw us? Are they trying to hurt us? Are they trying to take advantage of us? But when you meet somebody and and they're just openly who they are, it, it's almost like you're in a state of relaxation because you don't have any reason to question them. But we as a, as a human race, regardless of gender, have are now at a place where we have to question everything, right? And now, you know, most of my experiences in North America, so I couldn't talk about people overseas, but my experience as a North American person is when I look at what's happening in our nation and our nation down South, we're, we're, we're quite, we're constantly questioning things. And when I meet somebody, when I get to know them, whether digitally, whether in person, whatever, and I immensely feel comfortable with them because they're just being who they are. It's almost like that now is the gold currency, right? That, 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 so, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's important or it's, it's immensely valuable because it, it disarms people and it, it, it gets you further in so many places than you ever had to be before. And by the way, can I add, being unauthentic actually is more work than being authentic. It's your, you, you literally have to keep track of all of these lies. There was this commercial as a kid I used to watch. It was a local church and, and they had this, this, this song, if you will. And it would say like, when you tell one lie, it leads to another. When you tell two lies to cover each other, when you tell three lies, oh brother. Right. And it was this idea of, wow, it's a lot of work to bullshit people. <laughs> like, cause yeah. you have to track and, and always be this character, if you will. Whereas when you're off, when you're just being yourself and you're authentic, oh man, Andy, you could show up anywhere and and just be cool, just be cool. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's the number one thing I teach my boys as well. And as I mentioned earlier, they're always you know constantly navigating masculinity at their age. But I tell them, just be you. Don't worry about it if someone doesn't like you because school is one part of what your universe is going to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that for me, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's laziness. Cause I don't want to work as hard. So being authentic is easier, but number two, it's amazing to me 
how many, I'm not going to say opportunities, but how many things, how many, even spiritually, how many things open up um, because people are disarmed. People are more willing to be vulnerable with it. Yeah. Yeah. Vulnerability is a, a powerful tool that mm. men for generations have been told is just not for them. Yeah. It's not. No. 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 Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I get what you say, I, you know, that, it takes more energy because conscious lying is one thing, but even yeah. unconscious, like putting on the mask and pretending yeah. to be in a role because you think you're yeah. supposed to. Yeah, it's draining. It doesn't feel good. That's that right. that life of, of sluggishness. Like, oh, is this as good as it gets? Come on. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah it and, I, you know, I, and I remember my dad would come home and sort of have a shot of whiskey. And it's like, because he was not being himself all day. Yeah. Right. He was being, because my dad would watch hockey and he would like, he'd be joyous and he would, you know, he would scream and he would not, he wouldn't cry, but he'd be like, oh, the Leafs, you know, he would, he would tell, but I saw him at work. He was a different man at work. He was this sort of this very, very stoddard person who he was an accountant, right? So he just, you know, pencil and paper and ledger and, and, I, and, and, and they would come home and he'd have to have some whiskey or something just to break free. And I, and I wasn't until I was much older and after he passed that I realized, wow, like that, that was a burden that he had to carry every day because someone somewhere, probably in his upbringing, told him that's how it had to be. And also told him he had to tell me to be that way. Yeah, that's a, a common complaint I'll get from men when I, when I first start coaching them is that yeah. I'm in this role here and this role there and that role there and this role there. And I don't actually like any of them. <laughs> right? And Because like, yeah. they're all fake. So, yeah, when yeah. you're authentically you, no, yeah. be you at work. Be you yeah. with your kids. Be you with yeah. your wife. Right? Be you everywhere. Yeah. And because that lets people, oh my God, I love Bob. It gets yeah. close to you or realize, oh, that's not the, that's not what I thought Bob was. All right, I'm out of here. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. And they both serve you. They're both good. Absolutely. It's the best filter for an amazing life because as you just said, it filters away those that are not serving what it is that your life needs and brings closer those that can serve your life. Yeah. Is this the point post-divorce? Post, it, it was this, the next iteration was kind of uh, choosing to build up your own knowledge and, and creating a new version of you? So this, after the divorce, you know, my identity as an entrepreneur was gone. Mm. So uh, I realized I had to return to the workforce. But, you know, the logic was I'd been an entrepreneur for so long. Who's going to hire someone like that? So my next iteration of Bob came about completely by accident. Uh, a friend of mine, she had told me about this job in the government that had opened up. And they were looking. It was a northern town, uh, north from Toronto, Canada. And uh, they were looking for somebody to help their small town business owners um, basically coach them, right? Understand how to run a business or how to start a business. And although I'd been an entrepreneur for a long time, Andy, I'd never coached people, right? I had opinions, <laughs> but I never actually coached people. So I said, what the heck? I'll apply for the job. You know, I'm, it's not like I have anywhere to live anyway. <laughs> so I applied for the government job. And uh, after a three-month sort of hiring process, I got it. Right. And I was shocked because, you know, I had no experience in government all these years as an entrepreneur. And, and, uh, I was really blessed that the, the, the woman who was hiring the manager of that role, uh, took a chance on me. And in that started coming out this other new Bob, which was, I wanted to be the guy that could, could effectively marry entrepreneurship and government. I had a mentor at the time who said the fact that you're an entrepreneur was 90% the reason why they hired you because they had always hired government agents before. And government agents, government doesn't move at the pace of entrepreneurship. So they hired you because they wanted an entrepreneur in this role. 
And so for, for, for the next four to five years, I was, you know, working for different government agencies at this apex of government and entrepreneurship. How do we meld these two? And it, in fact, it evolved into economic development, which you're probably familiar with is this idea of how do we create prosperity in communities? But I had always worked in small communities, rural communities, or, you know, not large communities by any means. And so it transformed me to be this advocate, this guy, like I, I became the expert of gov- government and entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs would call me, government agencies would call me. I was asked to speak by government agencies as an entrepreneur groups. Uh, I knew where all the resources and funding were for people that they didn't know existed. I knew what entrepreneurs were actually thinking that government agencies didn't know. It was an amazing, like it was amazing. I, I was so happy and proud. Like Andy, uh, it, you know, not since I wore my uniform had I ever felt that kind of pride again. Mm-hmm. And that pride, again, I had developed a new identity was every government agency I worked with. I had a key card with my picture on it. That was like my shield, my mantle. I wore it everywhere. I would go to the grocery store wearing it because I was so proud. I was like, that's me. And uh, I would learn in government later that actually you want to hide it because you don't want people complaining about the government. So <laughs> I didn't do that. I wore it everywhere because I was so proud. So, you know, I, I, be, I became this person and lived this life and I loved it. And then I had a placement in an agency that completely destroyed it. And it was, a, it was, it was the first time I had gone from rural small communities to a large urban center. And I lasted barely six months and it, 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 it broke me. And you remember the first time I had lost my business because I didn't have the foundations of a business. The second time I had lost my identity because again, I didn't build the foundations right. Again, it, it's sort of something that came upon me and I was so excited that I, I didn't look for the warning signs. I didn't look at sustainability. I just looked at this feels good and it's legal. So I kept doing it. Um, and so this role happened upon me and it didn't, uh, it didn't go very well. I ended up taking stress leave uh, for a period of time to try and figure out what was going on, what was wrong. And um, at the same time, my mom was, sick. She wasn't doing well. So I'll be very honest and very, it was very uncharacteristic of me. I made an excuse and I said, look, I'm on sick time. And here in Canada, they give you up to two years on sick time uh, for mental health. Uh, I actually called them and said, I don't want to be on disability uh, because I, 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 that's not the Bob I want to be. Right. And, and they, and I remember the HR department saying, you know, legally you can do it. You can get free money for two years. And I said, yes, but when I'm on that uh, disability, the department I'm leaving can't hire or replace me. They're going to be understaffed for two years. And then I thought about all the business owners that would be impacted and all the funding that would be impacted. And I realized I didn't want to be that guy that was responsible for that. So I remember calling in and quitting uh, April 1st. And I remember HR didn't know, they're like, we've never had someone phone in a resignation. And I was on the phone for about an hour while they figured it out. <laughs> and then I, I left. I said, yeah, my mom's sick and you know whatever. So I went down and I ended up staying with my mom for a while. And that was one of the first iterations of this new identity that came to be where I am today. Was I remember I was terrified to tell my mom I quit my amazingly most high paid government job. Because I, you know, I was a single, I have a single mom. I'm the only child. I was terrified to tell her now I'm back to square zero. I've got nowhere to stay. I've got to kind of start from scratch. And, uh, you know, here she was sick and I, you know, I was here to, to show up and, and help her. And, uh, I remember her telling me like, you know what, just come home and we'll figure it out. And my mom had never done that ever. And it's not that she was a bad mom. It's that again, there's her pattern is don't admit defeat. And for the first time she said, just come home and we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And it was, it was an amazing 
breakthrough for me because it was the first time I had permission not to be the man I thought she told me I had to be. And, uh, so I ended up taking a sabbatical, if you will, taking care of my mom and she recovered really quickly while I was there and she has a business of herself. So I helped run the business and I took care of her as much as she took care of me to be quite frankly, quite frank, right. She was helpful as well. And I was in this town where I didn't know anybody and nobody knew me. And, uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Andy to be in a community where I could, I was a chameleon, right? Cause everywhere I had been before, when you work for a government agency, you become a bit of a celebrity, like wherever you go in that local community, people remember you, right? People remember, Oh, that's Bob. And I loved being somewhere where I could not shave, walk around in shorts, probably not wear underwear. And I never really worried about it. Right. And so it's, I started really investing more in me in, in, okay. So what I've done this twice, I've fallen down twice. I need to figure out what to do next so that this is a permanent change. And so I spent, uh, with my mom's support, I spent a lot of time working on me, psychologists, life coaches, trying to figure me out. I um, eventually started, you know, getting back into entrepreneurship again and really playing with what it is that I love to do and wanted to do. And so although I had the business, I was still really working on me. And then I started, I, I started realizing every time I fall down, and I get back up and I call all the people I knew before to say, Hey, I'm, I'm a free agent now. What are you doing? Let's figure it out. They always said yes. Right. Andy, like they always, they said, you know what, Bob, you're the kind of guy that if you say you're going to do something and you can do it and figure it out, I trust you. I had this implied trust of expertise mm-hmm. and I didn't even have expertise in this specific thing. So it clicked. I was like, you know what? I need to teach people how to take that knowledge that they have and, and, and create their own economy. And that became my passion. Before I even figured out a monetization plan for it, Andy, that became my passion. How do I tell people that when when you have knowledge, Andy, nobody can take that away from you. When you know so, when you're good at something, nobody can take that away from you. Nobody. And that was the most immense m- empowering thing I have ever thought to myself. Nobody could ever take away the knowledge that I have. So I started building this business around it. And then, you know, I told my mom she was doing better. I made a choice saying, mom, I want to be near the kids now. My mom lived two and a half hours away from the kids. And I said, I want to be near them. And I really want to, you know, make this work. And she understood. She said, you know, I understood. You've done what you need to do. You're not happy here. You're not fully happy here. I see you evolving. So I ended up moving back to being near my kids, which I hadn't done since this government Bob got built, right? So this five years of of this, of this second identity. So this third identity, I moved up to be near the kids. Uh, I started really working on me and started working on this new business and this new identity of this is who I am. And this is who I want to be. And it's okay to cry. And it's okay to be vulnerable. And it's okay to, to, to set boundaries and to do friendectomies. And, uh, as I was evolving, um, I don't know what the timeline in, in the U S was, but COVID hit here. And when COVID hit, we immediately went into lockdown. I shouldn't say that it took us a month and a half, but we shut everything down. And so here I am stuck in this place where I couldn't go out. I couldn't see people. I couldn't do things. It was almost like being a monk in a temple. And I got to tell you, I am so happy for the people that have thrived. And I'm so sad for the people that have struggled during this time, but it amplified Andy. It amplified. It was almost like a monk in a temple. It amplified the work I was doing on myself. I, I got more busier than ever. I started really investing in vulnerability and gratitude and journals and just all of these elements that I threw away before because they weren't manly enough. And it was almost like it really was. It was almost like I was in this, this temple of just working on me, hearing my own voice. 
and so it 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 it, it amplified who I want to be. It be, it helped me really become really work towards being the Bob that I want to be. I became much more happier. I was so much more happier. I realized that when I when I speak and when I go to events and when I talk to people, I realized it was a character. It was a shell. Talk about inauthenticity. Mm. I realized that wasn't who I wanted to be. So I had all this time to work on me. And this time with COVID for me has been immensely valuable, immensely valuable. Right? And, I, and I don't say that to take away from everyone else in the world that's experienced different things. But for me, it has been immensely valuable to, to really work on who I am. That was a very long answer. Sorry, Andy. <laughs> no, no, no. And I'm, I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that because that's something I've been encouraging and recommending and urging people to do is like, hopefully, yeah, we never get this global timeout again. Yeah. And yeah. again, every, everyone, no matter what you're dealing with, you've probably got more time than you thought you had or have had yeah. previously. And yeah, it's a chance to go within to build yourself up. Like, don't have this just end. We go back to normal, whatever that yeah. meant. Um, but like, what do you, what, what's new normal? What do you yeah. want to create? Yeah. Who do you want to be? So I, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. You well, know, it's this, all, this where it works. It's like, be with yourself, date yourself, uh, talk to yourself, uh, do the things that you never did before for yourself yeah. and uh, it, immensely valuable, immensely valuable for sure. Awesome. So as the experts expert, yeah, is everybody an expert in something? Yes. Um, but one of the things about being an expert is it, it, it does have a, a large mindset component behind it. So anybody can be an expert in anything, or let me rephrase that, Andy. There's a market for everything. People are like, I don't think people want what I know. And I remind them to look at the market overseas. <laughs> There's a market. Go to Alibaba.com. There's a market for everything. So certainly everyone has the ability and the propensity to create their own economy as an entrepreneur. But to, to lead this life as an expert, and I've, I've sort of rambled on about it here, there's a huge mindset component. I could, you know, build the most perfect business plan for you that would make you money starting tomorrow. But unless you have the coping capabilities, the mental health um, uh, awareness, uh, the the network, the community around you of men or of, of like-minded individuals, you'll never succeed at being an expert. So when I teach people, when I coach them, a lot, that's why I call myself an entrepreneur coach, not a business coach, because I work as much on the mindset part of it as I do on the business skills part of it. Because, you know, and my core values are threefold, right? Every, perf- every entrepreneur finds success when they uh, understand wellness, when they understand business skills, and when they understand connection. And so uh, to answer your question, yeah, anybody can do it uh, or anybody can achieve it. But to do it, it requires a lot of, of inter, inter-reflection, inter-discipline and inter-work. Cool. Yeah. And there was a, something on your blog caught my eye, a term that I've never heard I want to ask about. So yeah. tell me about assholes. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while to come to terms with using that word. <laughs> That's a great word. I get it. I have yeah. never heard that. So ask yeah. ask are really interesting and they're usually hidden in our family. <laughs> ask are when um when someone asks for your advice and you 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 give your advice. You you openly share because remember what I said, love is a big part of me. So when someone asks me for help, I assume I presume that they're being vulnerable with me. And so I give them that. I give them the answer that I believe can help them and that guidance in my 17 years of entrepreneurship and 42, 43, 43 or 42, I should check, of being a man, you know, uh, and the next day they just don't take it. Now, 
Askholes aren't people who who don't just take your advice and ignore it. Askholes are the ones that that constantly make excuses about it. So certainly there are people you give advice to and they don't follow through. But Andy, you and I both know there could be patterns that disrupt that. There could be self-limiting beliefs that could disrupt that. They could exist in a in a network or a family structure that doesn't support that. I, I completely empathize with that. I don't define them as askholes. I define those as askholes that when you when you give them the love of knowledge, the love your gift of knowledge, and when they come back and say, I didn't do it because that's an asshole. 100% because the idea here is you asked me for help. I gave you exactly what did you want to do, but you still want to exist in this sort of place of, of denying it all. And so one of the greatest friendectomies or one of the greatest things I did with my network was eliminate assholes. Assholes. I'm a huge guy when it, I love data. I'm able, I, I, I have... I have a really good sense of who asks holes are in my network because I can check our Facebook exchanges <laughs> and um, I just remove them from my network and I still get them sniffing around. And so here's the thing. I'm not a fan of cutting people off. Um, well, for the most part, uh, but the idea is, you know, now when they come, I say, you know what, Jane, I hear what you're saying or John, you know what? I hear what you're saying. Here's a, here's a podcast I think would help you. Or I read this book. I bet it'll help you. I, so it's not that I've I've now restricted my love because then I would be a hypocrite. I've just told you when I give love, I feel good. Um, but all I do now is I set boundaries around my time and boundaries around my expectations. So when yeah. someone asks me the question and I know that they're an asshole, I hear the question. I'm like, you know what? You should check out maybe Andy's podcast session, uh, you know, season two, episode six. I bet you that would really help you. And not only do I feel good about still being able to dispense the advice, I've now detached myself from the outcome. Yeah. Right. I am now detached myself from the outcome. It is in their hands to take that next step and take that initiative. And if they come back, then I ask them, did you listen to the episode? And they say, no, I'm like, I hear you, but you want to check it out. So that's, that's kind of how I, I deal with ask holes. I'm not a fan of just, again, just turning about face on them. Yeah. So it's more of a redirect. You, you yeah. learn that your personal one-on-one attention is not appreciated yeah. or followed. So, all right, yeah, I'll help you but something that doesn't take drain you further at all. Yeah. And it still maintains the status of experts. So when someone does mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it, you can't say that they didn't help you. They actually did. So see, the idea of an expert is this presumption that you have to know everything. Actually, what an expert is, is this idea that you, you have amassed knowledge that can help transform somebody in some way and have the ability to, to create more knowledge. And here's what I mean. If someone asks you a question that you don't know to the, the answer to, that's okay. But you need to be able to know how to find that answer. Right. That's what makes an expert. And now what we see, as you know, I constantly talk about this evolution of us as a species, is people want to deal with experts that they resonate with. We have all of these personality types, Myers-Briggs. We have all of these external um, ways of defining love, five love languages, right? And, and so now people want to resonate with someone to really appreciate their knowledge. There could be someone else that does exactly what I do, but has a different personality than me. I support them because you know why, Andy, we're both going to do really well because we attract different people and we resonate with different people. So yeah, yeah. there's plenty of people in the world and there's plenty of people that need help, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. It's not a competition. Yeah, no, cool. they're colleagues, not competitors. And I think that's the other part of being an expert is being confident in what it is, you know, and what your gift is. Mm-hmm. And if someone comes along and says they do it as well, I'm OK with that. So a lot of people come to me and said, you know what, Bob, I help people do what you do. That's awesome. How do you do it? I'll tell you how I do it. And maybe we can work off each other. Maybe we can refer off each other or learn from each other. I learn as much from people who do what I do as much as I hope they learn from what I teach. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, so Bob, through all, through your unfolding, continuous evolution. Yes. Um, is, is there one thing top of mind that you wish more men knew? 
you know, I think it's, it's okay to ask women for help. And I want to qualify what I mean by this. A lot of the growth and development I've done has come from as many female leaders as it has male leaders. And in fact, the reason why my ex-wife and I get along as well as we do and co-parent as well as we do now is because I now I understand who she was when we were married. And I, I didn't have that. And I think more men need to be okay asking women for help, right? And, you know, I, I see a lot of, of uh, I'm really blessed to be able to work with a lot of female leaders who have female-only communities. They allow me to come in and, and support their communities. But at the same time, talk to them, right? Like, understand they're going to have insight. Women are going to have insight that we just as men have never seen before. And every time I do it, by the way, Andy, I'm made better. I'm made better because I've seen a part of the world that growing up I never was exposed to. Even with a mom, I was never exposed to. So I encourage more men to talk to more women and openly ask them for advice. Mm. You know, this is, you know, we, we see a lot of, uh, I think, women who have to face a lot of derogatory nonsense on social media networks with private messaging, with dating apps, and even in professional settings. But every time I ask a woman for advice, it, 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 even to this day, Andy, it's, it, it sometimes takes me back. It takes me aback a little how surprised they are. Mm. Like some will actually say, are you really asking or are you, is this a pitch for something or are you just trying to, and I literally say, I'm honestly asking if you're comfortable sharing, I'm grateful. And, and, and I remember one of my, one of the women I love following, one of my favorite mentors, she actually sent me one of her books, which is called The Purse String Effect. <laughs> I'm promoting her book, but it's an amazing book because it talks about how men need to understand how women consume how they buy. And it was like, you know, a game changer. Cause again, 42 years, you would think I would know how to sell to women. And this just opened my brain to realize actually, uh, you know, what they need to feel comfortable and safe and making a purchasing decision is completely different. But I wouldn't have known that Andy, if I didn't ask her, mm-hmm. I would have known that if I said, you know, I'll change it. Well, Wendy, Wendy's the author. I remember asking Wendy, Hey Wendy, I have this idea and I want to work on it. But I want to make sure it's applicable to women as much as men. I remember, you know, we had an amazing discussion about it. So, cool. Yeah, uh, Bob, I really pre- appreciate your authenticity, your vulnerability. I'm really glad you let your kids coach you up to be present, yeah. Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what's the best way for people to to learn more about you, connect with you? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn, and you know, certainly I'm on every social network. I need to maybe work on boundaries and getting a life. But uh, LinkedIn for me is the best way to find me. So if they search my name on LinkedIn, and if they send me a request, I just ask, send a note and say, "Hey, I heard you on Andy's podcast." And if they do that, Andy, only because it's your podcast, I'm totally happy to take 30 minutes and chat with them about what they're struggling with in their business, or even like if they're just a man that wants to talk. You know, I, I, but I want to make sure that they're active listeners of yours because I want to ensure that we're supporting each other in ways that I think we can't find elsewhere. So I'm, I'm totally happy to do that. They find me on LinkedIn, send me a note. Hey, Bob, heard you on Andy's podcast. I'm totally happy to make time to, to chat with them about whatever's going on in their world. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, great. And uh, I'll, I'll save you the search. Visit the blog at realmenfield.org. We'll have all the show notes. We'll have links directly to Bob's profile on LinkedIn and to other places you can find him. And, uh, I know you have a book we never had a chance to even talk about. So if that's still somewhere, well, I'll link to that too. Yeah, I, it, believe yeah. it or not, it's still in production. So I have okay, the great. book, oh, but cool. uh, I haven't actually done the whole production. Like, <laughs> actually put it out there for sale, uh, which oh. is a task I need to work on because I, I took COVID off to work on me. <laughs> okay. All right.
Well, uh, well, it, it hasn't ended yet, so you still have time. <laughs> You're right. Absolutely. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, again, thanks, Bob, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, Thank for listening. You. And, uh, if, you know, if you are having trouble meeting men that you could talk to and have open, engaging conversations, I invite you to visit realmenfeel.org slash gift. I've created a, uh, a short report on different places. You can meet like-minded men, both virtual and physical. So you download that. You'll be on the Real Men Feel newsletter. You'll hear about all the future shows. You won't miss any great guests like Bob and friends of Bob that, that join in the future. And, uh, and until next time, be good to yourself, give some love to yourself, mm-hmm. and be willing to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Bye. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Join the private Real Men Feel Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Real Men Feel. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover Real Men Feel. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit ProstateOnePerDay.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.